Good morning. It's great to see you. Great to be with you. It is Father's Day. Um, in our family, we didn't really celebrate or can I have too many Father's Day traditions. And, uh, but I wonder, have you had any today? Breakfast in bed, I think one had, is that right? Who's having lunch cooked for them again? That's a tradition, Sunday by Sunday. Jim, fantastic. Um, I saw a friend on Facebook this morning, and uh, he's got a little son, and his son has made him a crown. And he's sitting having breakfast with the crown on, and the little caption for today said uh, that his son has said he can be king for the day. I thought, poor dad, tomorrow's going to be back to the... uh, Back to the normal. I wonder how long it will last. Traditions. I want to read from uh, uh, the Bible. Uh, I'm going to read from a translation, the NIV, chapter 3 of John's Gospel, verse 22. Chapter 3, verse 22, to the end of the chapter. I think it will be on the screen. There we go. I encourage you to follow it in paper or on your device. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone's going to him. To this John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it's now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him.
traditions. We develop traditions, rituals, really quickly, believe it or not. Um, very quickly in new families, traditions are established. They cause difficulty with parents and wider family because, you know, that first Christmas of marriage, where do you go to spend Christmas? But you've spent Christmas with us every year of your life. Well, I know. Now we make new traditions. I, I, I'm kind of glad in this church it doesn't always apply, but uh, you know, there's that old kind of adage of where you sit in the church, in your seats, for instance. And it's great. It's kind of we, Phil and I often stand up here and we're kind of looking because no, you kind of sit generally, but you have a habit of moving. Which is great, because we're like, oh, where are they? Oh, there. It, you're not so traditional. But we do get very set in our ways, don't we? I came across some illustrations, kind of excessive, but they demonstrate how quickly things get set in stone. And we forget why we do it. Tells the story, this guy who researched these things for more than 20 years for no apparent reason. An attendant stood at the foot of a stairway leading into the House of Commons in London. And someone asked the question one day, why is that attendant standing at the bottom of the stairway in the House of Commons? And research was done. Someone was sent to find out why. And it was discovered the job had been held in the attendant, the current attendant's family, for three generations. And it was apparently began when the stairs were painted and the current attendant's grandfather was assigned the task of warning people not to step on the wet paint. The paint dried up a long time ago, but the attendant continued. Three generations. Taxpayers' money. <laughs> what about this one? In 1803, the British Civil Service posted a man to stand on the cliffs of Dover with a telescope. And he was instructed to ring a bell if he saw Napoleon and his army coming across the English Channel. That position was finally abolished in 1945. <laughs> 124 years after Napoleon died. What about uh, those things? What, I, I can't remember where they take it. In London, I remember seeing it as a child on television where they have those old guns, you know, the guns, and they, have, and they rush about the stadium. Is it um, uh, Crystal Palace they did it or, or Earl's Court or something? And the tattoo, wasn't it? That was it. And, and I remember seeing it and thinking it was slightly bizarre with all those strange costumes. But someone kind of asked the question, why were there six soldiers when they worked out that only five were needed? Military historians researched the past and discovered that the role of the sixth man was originally to hold the horse. But they didn't use horses for a long time. Well, finally, I came across this one. I liked it particularly. The Tsar of Russia used to like walking across a particular field. One day in 1915, he noticed that there was a century posted in the middle of a field. The soldier was there every day. The Tsar ordered an investigation into the soldier's role and where and why it all began. They discovered it dated back to the reign of Empress Catherine, Catherine the Great, who in 1776 
had walked in that particular field and came across the first flower of spring, she ordered that a sentry be posted so to stop someone stepping on that first spring flower. Sentries were stationed on that spot from 1776 to 1915, but no one knew why. Mad, isn't it? Traditions can be enriching. I'm not dissing every tradition. Traditions start for a reason. Traditions kind of begin for a good reason, but they kind of can snowball and become the thing you do and don't even remember why. Seven years ago on my sabbatical, I was learning a bit about politics, had the privilege to spend some time in Westminster. And there's so many traditions, like those lines in the House of Commons. You know why they're there, don't you? Because they used to have swords, and they were enough distance away so the, the opposition and the prime minister couldn't stab each other. And they're still there, and you can't go over them. And it's a tradition. I don't know if you saw in the news this week, uh, of uh, uh, she, she's the, the, the only green MP. She was making some uh, representation about page three and about nudity that, uh, and the kind of, um, of how it was uh, affecting women and... Um, and she, she went to present in this um, uh, committee, and she took her jacket off, and she had a T-shirt that said, no more page three. And she started to give a speech, and the chair stopped and said, excuse me, um, please can you put your jacket on? You're, you're out of order. And she said, it's ironic that in nine or 11 establishments in the Palace of Westminster, they can print newspapers with naked women, and that's not out of order, but she can stand in a T-shirt, and she's breaking the dress code of how MPs should be. Something slightly weird. In this story, John's disciples have become traditional. They've seen that John the Baptist, this great kind of man of God, a weirdo, I mean, he dresses in camel's hair and eats locusts and honey, kind of modern design and cuisine, hope cuisine in those days. And people flock to him because actually he's, he's a man who preaches God's word and speaks to the heart of people's lives and the national institutions and says, the way that you're going, the traditions that you've engaged in don't help you come to God. They hinder. They hold you back. Come, repent, and be baptized in readiness for the kingdom of God. And people flocked out because they recognized the religion of the day, the truths of the day. We're not meeting, as we describe it sometimes, that whole, that gap, that longing for truth and reality. And John gathered around him followers and disciples, and they were baptizing many people. And we've heard in the story of John how one day Jesus comes to be baptized by John the Baptist. And John says of Jesus, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In him there is no darkness. In him is truth. He will be the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And Jesus begins his ministry he sort of catapulted onto the scene and when he turns water into wine at Canaan of Galilee. And he begins to do amazing things. And news about him spreads. And people start coming to Jesus. And they are hungry for truth, hungry for, for reality, hungry to meet with God. And, and as part of that, they are baptized. 
we're told uh, that Jesus and his disciples baptized. Chapter 4 um, just kind of uh, gives a little bit of insight into that. Um, verse chapter 4, 1 and 2, the, the, the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although it wasn't Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. And John's disciples kind of get a bit jealous. Their daily baptismal quota was lessening because they were going to Jesus. And John's disciples begin to kind of question, begin to kind of grumble, and they come to John. And John the Baptist kind of says, I was center stage, and now it's my time to move to the wings. Because the more important, the chief player, the central character is amongst us. He must become more, I must become less. John the Baptist, remember, this one who's been part of the story of Jesus with Christmas stories, the announcement to Elizabeth and to Zachariah, you're going to have a son, they were old and barren in the temple, you know the story. John was given by God to prepare the way. John the Baptist, the one, that firebrand with his waist deep in the water, that anathema to the religious authorities in Jerusalem because people flocked and said, get ready, a new day is coming. And that Jesus said, this John the Baptist, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. We don't know much about John. We know far more about Samuel and Elijah and, uh, and even Jeremiah and Daniel and Moses, those Old Testament prophets. But Jesus says, this John is greater than all of those. And John says, I must bow out because I am eclipsed. The focus, the spotlight is upon Jesus. But he has some powerful words to say. John gives us in parentheses in the brackets. This is just before, this is before he's beheaded. John is removed. In John's gospel, this is the last time John plays any role. But his final words, his parting scene is so, so profound. You see, he talks about, he's kind of like the best man at a wedding. I've had the privilege of conducting lots of weddings. And you know full well that the two star characters of the day are, and everyone says, don't you look beautiful? They do, generally. And then the, uh, the, the, the second star of the day is the mother-in-law. No, who's the second star of the day? I don't know if you've ever been to a wedding where the best man thinks that he's center stage. Have you? It would be weird, wouldn't it? It would be wrong. It would be out of order. And John kind of says, I'm like the best man. I'm there to help Jesus, the bridegroom. And the bride that 
in the Old Testament language, that was the people of God called Israel. And we see in John's gospel how Jesus starts to begin to define who are the new people. Amazingly, right from this, this encounter uh, in chapter 3 that we've had, what's the next story in the gospel? It's the Samaritan woman. Jesus begins to form a new people, not out of the kind of the good and the great and those who have just got great Jewish heritage, but those who will turn to God and trust in Jesus Christ. That's who are now God's people. And John says, I've come as the best man to facilitate, to prepare, to let this occasion happen. And it's just so right that I fade away. Not because he's unimportant, but because he's done his job. So the end of this chapter kind of reminds us so much. In chapter 3, Jesus has come and, uh, and Nicodemus has come at night and they've had this dialogue. And, and Jesus said to Nicodemus, you know, you've got to be born again. Something's got to change. Something profound has got to change. It doesn't happen by accident that the work of God has got to take place in you. You must be regenerated, born from above, a sea change in life. That we don't fall into it. We don't get born into it by natural means. It happens with spiritual rebirth, with a powerful transformational encounter with the Holy Spirit, born again. Nicodemus is like, huh? How can that happen? I can't get back in my mother's womb. I'm too big and too old. I've got a big beard. Born again, this is Jesus. And the second part of John's story in chapter 3 is not only should we have this transformational experience, but our beliefs change. To embrace the true identity and the origin and the mission of Jesus. That John points to Jesus and says, I bow out, but now he is center stage. Understand, please. Make it your, uh, your, your call and your desire and your, make it, uh, make this, get in your head of who Jesus is. So, so profound. You see, John is saying in his own words that we cannot simply say that Jesus is just a rabbi or a sage or a prophet. Listen to what he says. The one, verse 31, the one who comes from above, Jesus, is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as from the earth. Remember, this is John, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He's saying, this one is in a different league to me. The one who comes from heaven is above all. Reiterated again. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it, is, it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent, Jesus, speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. That is so profound. John, the great herald, the great preparer of all people, you and I, if you're not convinced of Jesus yet, please hear John the Baptist 
a truthful man, a truthful prophet who speaks clearly to us. Jesus is not just a good teacher. Jesus is not just a good dispenser of wisdom and homely truths. Jesus isn't just someone you dip into and take a little bit of what he says and make it your own. Jesus is from above and God the Father has given him all authority. God the Father has given everything into his hands. Nobody else. Jesus was not crucified for being a good citizen. For just being a little bit nicer than everybody else and he made everyone felt a bit awkward. So let's do away with it and thank you very much. The powers of the day, Pilate and the Greeks and the, uh, and the Romans and the Jews, correctly saw in Jesus and the followers that he was forming that they were true subversives because they took their direction from somewhere else. Not from human institutions or traditions, from him. The last pope said it like this. Having a clear faith according to the traditions and the teachings of the church is often labeled as fundamentalism. Yet relativism, in other words, that pick and mix, that kind of thinking a bit of this, a bit of that. How do they all fit together? Well, nicely somehow, like we just don't know how to fit the jigsaw together. He says, that yet relativism, that is letting oneself be carried here and there by any wind of doctrine, appears as the sole attitude good enough for modern times. How we need to hear the clarion cry of John. Look to Jesus. He is the only Savior. He is the only one who can transform your life. There is no other. I emphasized that last time with Nicodemus. If you want to change yourself, you won't. But if you come to God, God in his power through Jesus Christ can change you, can change your circumcise, can rewrite the destination of your life. You cannot do it. Jesus does. And in a world of voices, we prayed for Jemima to say, uh, one of the parents, grandparents, prayed that she would discern Jesus' voice in the voices that are spoken into her life. That is true for each one of us. And we would do well to listen closely to Jesus and prioritize it and make his words the foundation, the pattern, and the rhythm, and the melody of our lives. John is drawing a line in the sand. Verse 26. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the man who is with you on the side, the one you testified about. Well, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. And John says, great. Because he's the one they need to come to. Don't kind of waste your time with other philosophers. I'm not saying don't read them. I'm not saying be narrow-minded and closed-minded. But for heaven's sake, listen to Jesus. Baptism for John and for Jesus was that declaration, that clear line in that sand, that acted obedience to say something has happened. I commit myself to Jesus, to God. Solely, only, 
no one else. And this is such a difficult issue for us today. There was a report recently that faith organizations, Christian faith organizations, find it really hard to access uh, government and local council um, funding for things because statutory agencies say, well, you can't claim Jesus is exclusive. Jesus is the only way, the truth and the life. You cannot do that. But as Christians, we must say that. We must. It's not to say that we hate other people. Far from it. We're not making it up on our own clever thinking. We're saying Jesus has come from heaven. God's son, the one eternally with the father, the one who knows the father implicitly and the father knows him and comes amongst them and says, this is how it is. This is how it is. And I have to say, it is a shock. Philip, just um, last Sunday evening in the introduction to Ro- Romans, was saying how Christian, early Christians were called atheists because they believed the Romans thought in one God. And how can that be when there's so many different things to believe in? How can you align yourself totally and utterly to the one? And the Romans thought, stupid, uneducated, heathen, atheists. You know, we hear that again and again in our society about Christians. Stupid, uneducated. How dare they say such a thing? We don't say it on our own. We say it because we've revealed it. In his book, Max Licardo writes and asks this question, how can all religions lead to God when they are so different? And he says, rightly, we don't tolerate such illogic in other matters. It is illogical. He says we don't pretend that all roads lead to London. Because they don't. Or that all ships sail to Australia. Because they don't. We don't pretend that all flights that we would get on at any airport would all land in Rome. They don't, do they? They go different places. It's a lie of our culture that says, well, they all end up in the same place after all, don't they? You just choose your route. It's illogical. Imagine your response to a travel agent who claims that actually they all go to the same place. You tell him you need a flight to Rome uh, in Italy. And so he looks on his screen and says, well, there's a flight to Los Angeles departing at 6 a.m. Does it go to Rome? No, but it offers wonderful in-flight movies and dining. But he doesn't go to Rome. But I need to go to Rome. Then let me suggest to you, says the travel agent, Singapore Airlines. Singapore Airlines fly to Rome? No, but they've consistently won awards for on-time arrivals. You're growing frustrated. I need an airline to carry me to one place, to Rome, please. The agent appears offended. Sir, all flights go to Rome. And you know better. Different flights have different destinations. It's not. It's not being difficult. It's being the honest conclusion. Every flight does not go to Rome. Every path does not lead to God. I don't know how you respond to that. As Christians, you're probably going, well, we know that. 
but I guess in the place where we're not gathered as the Christian community, when you get out there, you feel quite pressured about that belief. That people will challenge you and call you on it. If you're seeking today, you're kind of in that, in that kind of array of, well, shall I believe in Jesus? What about Muhammad? What about, what about Buddha? What about these different ways? They're, they're kind of, why, why is Christianity any different? Well, I'm kind of saying, like John the Baptist, Jesus is the one. He's come from above. He's above all these earthly prophets and wise guys and gurus because he's from the Father. No one else is. Jesus was not like John the Baptist. Jesus is God. Jesus is God incarnate. This is the starting point of all of our faith. It's not just to say, well, what Jesus has got wise things to say and nice patterns to follow. Or, well, Jesus is is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Jesus is God with us, full of grace and truth, made flesh as the great word. The one who is above is above all. The one who is from earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. If you don't believe in Jesus, why? Genuinely, why, why, why would you not believe in Jesus? What is it in his life and his story and his character and his work that you think, this is, this is false, this is stupid, this is not worth betting my life upon? I'd love to have that conversation with you over coffee or come and visit you. On what basis? Genuinely, what basis? Jesus gives us good teaching, yes. He's very wise, yes. But in John's gospel, brothers and sisters, I want us to reconnect with, as John the Baptist declares, Jesus has come from the very heart of God, the Father. Indeed, he and the Father are one. Why do we trust implicitly in Jesus? Why do we put Jesus at the center of our church and call us to put Jesus at the center of our daily living and our work living and our relationship living and our financial living and our sexual living and all the different descriptions of how we would say what we do. We put Jesus at the heart and the center and above all and first, not second or last, but first because he is from the very presence and the heart of God. Jesus, uh, John the Baptist and any other kind of guru or sage or teacher or prophet is derived from human kind of earthly origins. That Jesus is from above. Born amongst us as a man, yes. But comes from the Father and teaches truth. Jesus teaches what he has seen and heard, verse 32 to 44. He doesn't speak on his own. He tells us what the Father says. And that in Jesus, the Spirit has been given without limit. Jesus is God's word come amongst us. Not just a prophetic word, but the word. That in Jesus, we see what God is like. If you reject Jesus, you do reject God. You may follow after other truths and philosophies, but that is not God. 
might be a nice idea. But I have to tell you, it isn't God. Jesus reveals God to us. And we come to Jesus. But Jesus is the resource. He's the beloved son of the Father. And everything which, the, listen to this, everything the Father possesses has been made available to Jesus. Everything of the Father's has been made for Jesus. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. One writer says, Jesus is the one from heaven. Come from the loving heart of God to the world to offer salvation to everyone who will believe in him. Believing in him brings eternal life, a rebirth into a new order by the Spirit, the personal reception of the supernatural, endless life of the kingdom. And for this reason, John says, I buy out. I become less because the bridegroom, the chief actor, the one the world has been waiting for has come. Jesus, staggering as it may seem, is the one. Jesus sent by God. Jesus speaks the word of God. Jesus makes God fully known. Jesus is from the very heart of heaven. Hallelujah. We put Jesus at the center of your own life and there's always a challenge in that because we like to think we know best. We put Jesus at the heart of our church to say it's about him. We honor him. We live for him. We want his glory and that means that he pushes us out of our comfort. We pushed into the kingdom things and we go with him not because he is the one who is truthful and right. And we proclaim him unavowedly, unashamedly, courageously. We proclaim him. And we call people to trust their lives to him, to be born again. To turn from other philosophers and other ideas or your own conception of the way things work and say, will you trust Jesus? He truly has the words of eternal life. He truly has the power to transform you. I love those four baptismal stories last week. They're online if you want to listen to them again. Lives change. Listen, you know, on the, online we've got loads of baptismal testimonies. If you want any evidence of the power of God at work, listen to the stories of the people around you. In this place, the power of God at work. Urge you to come to Jesus, to put him as Lord, to listen and obey what he says. Let's stand together.
You know, sometimes when in, in churches we, we preach what are called evangelistic sermons, of that call of the exclusivity and the invitation to you, to all of us. I know sometimes for Christians there's a kind of, oh, we've heard this. You know, there are people here who don't yet believe in Jesus. And there's a, it's a privilege to preach about Jesus. It truly is. And we've been praying and we're asking and making the opportunity now that, that even one should begin a new destiny. But you know, Paul also writes to Roman, the church in Rome. He says he longs to come to the church in Rome and preach the gospel. And I heard someone reflect on that and they said, why is it that to a church of committed believers... Paul wants to come and preach the gospel. Don't they know it? And there's lots of insight into that. But one of the things is that, brothers and sisters, as Christians, we need to hear again and again and be reminded of the gospel. Because things that are familiar sometimes become overly familiar and we disdain them. And in a world that will consistently challenge you brother and sister to think well that's okay for me but not for this world the gospel is the salvation of all people it really is there is no other way for people to be saved someone described it in our country there's a creeping universalism in the church and that means that the church kind of thinks well everyone will be all right won't they just as long as they're nice and sincere Follow the path they've chosen and don't deviate from that particular path. Not every path leads to God, only Jesus. For Jesus is God. I'm going to ask and invite and appeal and encourage and say to you here, if you don't believe in Jesus, would you make a decision for him today? not a magic formula but in essence what we're asking you to do is saying I will trust you Jesus with my life here it is I will trust you as my savior and I will live for you from this day committed to you and your ways putting you above even my own desires because you're God It's kind of a personal question. I'm not trying to catch anyone's eye. But the Lord is trying to catch your eye. Trying to catch your heart. Trying to catch your ear and say, turn to me, brother. Turn to me, sister. Today is a day of salvation. Move from the place of death to life, darkness to light. Moving out from wrath into favor. We'll sing a song that's shortly that says, you alone can rescue, you alone can save. I pray, Jesus. At least one person would take a step here now to you.
have the eyes of the heart open to see Jesus. Maybe someone else is. You know, I'm just, I, I, I'm, there's a verse in scripture that says that you kind of see yourself or your sins as red like scarlet. Scripture says they'll be white as snow. It's from Isaiah. Um, the trouble with preaching sections of the Bible is you, you sometimes forget the flow. The very next story of John's gospel is about Jesus encountering an outsider a woman who's had multiple husbands and committed adultery and been rejected by her community for all the stuff of her life that's messed up. And Jesus simply sits with her, talks to her, and the kingdom of God comes and her life is transformed for good.